It is a joy of tremendous order that we each have today to come together on an occasion such as this one, that the, with us, our health is sufficiently able to permit us to assemble today as often as we wish to continue to think of those who are sick of our number, that things may soon, of course, be much brighter for them in terms of their health prospect, we can be appreciative for the wonderful blessings of God on our behalf today. As you may have noted in the reading a few moments ago, certainly one of the most familiar texts of the entire Bible, one probably that many of us could not only state but quote ourselves, as you might have noted in the bulletin as well as in the wall to my left, we will look somewhat interestingly this morning at a lesson that has to do with the inspiration of the Holy Word of God, the inspiration of the Bible. However, I suspect we may take a tactical approach to that somewhat distinct or different than what we might have expected, evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. As we consider various evidences on that way, might I mention some introductory thoughts to prepare our minds for an extended discussion of that point. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Pausing at that point in that text, it sets before us the overwhelming fact that the thing that you and I read, the Word of God, claims itself to be directly and powerfully given exactly by His revelation. It is not mankind's thoughts. It is not mankind's words. It is God's thoughts in God's words. The Greek word that represents itself or is presented in that text, theonoustos, it literally means God breathed. It is as if God literally spoke it directly to these men who recorded it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. To those of us trained to respect the Word of God in that way, that doesn't seem a far-fetched idea. We treasure this book. We hold it so high and so dear, we appreciate that it is unlike any other book found in any library anywhere. It is the Word of God. However, I might point out that there are other books, though few in number, there are other books that also claim to be the revealed will of God. Two of them easily to be listed could well be these. The Book of Mormon claims to be the Word of God. It claims that one can find the pathway to eternal glory by following the precepts found therein. The Quran claims to be that book which will lead one to eternal glory following this life. Certainly, one can count on but very few fingers the number of books that claim to be the Word of God. You and I, however, would claim this one's not like those other two. There is something distinct and something different about the claims. Are the claims substantiated? Can you and I consider some evidences that lead to the converged conclusion that this book is in fact what it claims to be, and by the same token that those others are imposters? They are not the Word of God. They are in fact clothed men's words that claim to be the Word of God and no more. What are some of these evidences? In fact, today, in both our morning and evening lessons, we will look at five evidences, three of them this morning and two of them this evening. As we look at all five, I hope that we shall see an ironclad case for the inspiration of the Word of God, facts upon which you and I can rest and rely on to help us ever understand that this is no mere ordinary book. It is what it claims to be. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Without saying any more at this point, let us look at our first evidence. One of the first things it might be fair to say about this book that distinguishes it from any other book that one may in fact find. 
The very thought has to do with unity. By the word unity, it simply means the following. As one opens this book, the Word of God, we in essence discover that there are 66 smaller books that comprise this larger one. And those 66 smaller ones seem to present a harmony and a unity that is unexplainable if it was written by a man. Absolutely unfathomable that any person, human, no matter how much scholarly he may have been, could have written these books and present the unity that they present. Let's now build some more meat on that skeleton. Some evidences that lead us to that conclusion. The thought of this unity perhaps in the following way. The closing two verses of 2 Peter chapter 1 read as follows. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Absolutely set before us is the statement then that the Holy Spirit of God, one of the members of the Godhead, superintended the writing of the Holy Scriptures. Though there was actually a pen in the, of, in the hand of men, it was the Holy Spirit that was telling him what to write. It was the Holy Spirit affirming and guiding and directing that which is written. But that alone is in a very odd set of circumstances, isn't it? For that means that not everyone was inspired to write, but the Holy Spirit selected certain men at certain times to write certain things. It was God that made the choices. It was the Holy Spirit then that chose certain ones at the appropriate times to write the inspired things that were written. That takes on a heightened understanding and, an, and, a, and a more amplified meaning when we appreciate that those men that wrote were not all living at the same time. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He penned those books around the year 1500 B.C. The very last book in the Bible was written by John the Apostle, the book of Revelation, written shortly before the year 100 A.D. Thus, subtracting the latter from the former, we find a period of some 1,600 years roughly, separating the writing of the opening books to the writing of the last ones, over a millennium and a half. And yet, as one appreciates that, that's a far distinction in time. Compared for you and me today, that would be as though someone writing in the year 400 A.D. compared to today. Many centuries passed. Many things, of course, changed in that interval of time. One might also ask about how many different individuals wrote. The New Testament was written by eight separate individuals. The Old Testament, as near as we can figure, by 32. Summing the two numbers, 40 men, roughly, over a period of 1,600 years, wrote the Bible. All the while, the Holy Spirit superintending that writing, guiding the things that were written, Perhaps it's time to make some comments. Those thoughts, perhaps to us, we shouldn't allow them to pass by our mind too quickly. For consider this. By your standards and mine, 1,600 years is a long, long time. Most of us will never live to see a century in terms of age. Yet that's over 16 times that much. We know that kingdoms rise and fall. Civilizations come and go. Cultural fads will rise and wane. Times change in 1,600 years. It's unthinkable that a man riding that far apart could pen things that were so ultimately united and harmonious. Consider by way of example, science, for, for instance. 
in the scientific field, it would be laughable for any college student to expect to study as truth the things written 1,600 years ago. The telescope hadn't been invented. Modern medical science was unknown at that point. And yet, any medical school that were to expect its students to master the thoughts written even 200 years ago would soon lose its accreditation. We know that medical science has progressed and that which is written now does not harmonize with what was written in the past. New discoveries have been made. New truths, if you will, have been learned. But yet the Bible's written over 1,600 years in terms of its duration. That's unthinkable from the perspective of man. But that isn't all. Think about the characteristics of those who wrote. There is an extreme disparity in the character of those who wrote the books of the Bible. On the one hand, Solomon was a king, the highest position that one could hold in the earthly affairs of things. There were those who were paupers, poor in terms of their characteristics. There were others that we remember were Jewish. Others were Gentile. Some, in fact, were farmers and had other occupations. And yet all of these individuals provided a careful key and a powerful clue to one golden thread that works its way through all of the Bible. And not a single one of them contradicted any other. That's astounding. I'd submit to you no work of man could possibly have that characteristic. I've listed some of the thoughts on that screen for you to consider. The fluidity, the harmony, the unity to be found in the Bible, seen in many, many instances, but just a few texts might be in order. The very first book in the Bible, Genesis 22:18, as Moses penned that from our perspective now so long in the past, he said, speaking of Abraham, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. That may seem such an innocent statement, but yet notice how often it reappears, and the Apostle Paul latched on to that centuries later in Galatians 3, 27 and following. And in fact, it was he who provided the ultimate meaning for that statement originally made to Abraham. How could a man do that? Notice again the number of centuries that separated it. When Moses wrote it in 1500 B.C., it was not until the inspired apostle, in fact, took that statement and amplified its meaning by explanation, roughly in the year 60 A.D., over 1500 years later, the full meaning is now understood. In terms of men's writing, that can't happen. But look at some other examples also, if you would. In Genesis 50, verse 25, the closing chapter of the book of Genesis we remember that shortly before he died, Joseph gave command concerning his bones, don't bury my bones in this place, but rather when you leave Egypt, you take them with you and bury them in the land of Palestine, in the land of Canaan. You and I might think that's an innocent observation, a wish of a dying man. Did it come to fruition? Centuries later, it was no short amount of time when Israel left Egypt. Over 300 years would pass. Did they forget, though, what Joseph requested? Joshua 24, 32 tells us they took his bones with them when they left. Now, that was written far apart by a different writer. Joshua writing one book, Moses writing another, and yet the statements harmonize beautifully, one providing the fullness and the fulfillment of, of the other. In Jeremiah 26, we read another innocent appearing statement. 
as Jeremiah boldly spoke before the people of his day and urged them to repent and to draw near unto God and to live in the way that he had commanded, the people made an interesting remark. Jeremiah, if you'll permit me to paraphrase, Jeremiah, you are saying the same thing to us that Micah said to us a hundred years ago. Well, that's interesting. When did the prophet Micah write in the Old Testament? When did he live and when did he labor as a prophet for the cause of God? Historically, it was a hundred years earlier. Harmonizing perfectly both chronologically and with the message of the book of Micah, Jeremiah and Micah fit together like a hand in a glove. The beautiful harmony, though those books were written over a century apart. Perhaps yet another as we turn our attention to the New Testament. Notice the interesting statement found in Romans 4 verse 7. In that verse, as well as the one that follows, Paul pronounced a blessing. Blessed are those to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. That word impute simply means to reckon or to account. He said, blessed are those to whom God will not reckon iniquity, the penalties of sin. That's interesting when we remember that Paul quoted that from the psalmist in Psalm 32 verse 1, written well over a thousand years earlier. How could that be? How could David, writing a thousand years earlier, state the very matter that had come to fruition in the shed blood of the Savior and that Paul would use to amplify over a thousand years later? No man could have written that. No matter how wise, no matter how noble, no matter how well-intentioned he or she may have been, no human without divine inspiration could have written such a thing. And yet the Bible amplifies and displays that time and again. I've simply chosen a few critical examples. In as much as unity can well be stated, across centuries of time, across matters related to disparate backgrounds, and yet the same subject addressed wonderfully, that isn't the only evidence. May we consider another. What about the brevity of the Holy Scriptures? The brevity of the Word of God? Have you ever considered the fact that the Scriptures are brief in some of their presentations? And by that I mean two things. First, there are episodes and instances for which relatively few details are given in the Bible. There are, in fact, other episodes that, in fact, are such that no details at all are given. You and I, in our mind, would wonder, what happened? Would we not like to know? Would it not be our fervent and earnest desire to know more about that incident or that episode or that phenomenon? And yet, the Bible does not answer the questions. Consider just a few examples. I've listed a few for your consideration. You might well be able to add many others. The Ark of the Covenant. No piece of furniture in the tabernacle of the Old Testament was more significant than it. On its top was the mercy seat with the cherubim facing each other, and it was on that occasion that God met with His people, Exodus 25, verses 11 and following. And yet, as we note the importance that Ark of the Covenant had in the Old Testament, we can't help but wonder, what happened to it? Once the children of Israel went into captivity, it's not mentioned again. What happened to it? Now, admittedly, there have been individuals who've made movies about it. Indiana Jones went more than once to find it, and he claimed to have, but he didn't find that in the Bible. What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Wouldn't we like to know? Or consider another example. From the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew, 400 years of secular history passed. 
Wouldn't you and I like to know what transpired in that 400 years? Though the book of Daniel tells us generally what would take place, would we not like to know the details? Wouldn't we appreciate the glorious wonder of knowing as God revealed it through inspired prophets? No inspired record of those years. Or another example, what about the Lord's baptism? We know it is given in some detail. However, the inspired writer Matthew dispatches the baptism of Jesus in five verses. If a man were to have written that, probably a whole chapter devoted to it. At least several pages and paragraphs worthy of all the details of this marvelous and overwhelming occasion when the Lord was baptized by John in the Jordan. And yet, Matthew takes care of it in five verses. Does it sound as though a man would have done that? Is it not usual for men to elaborate, to exaggerate, to provide the details, to fill in page after page of details? Matthew did it in five verses. Or maybe another example. The most important individual ever to have walked this earth was Jesus the Christ. The Old Testament foretold on many occasions His coming. As He finally was born, recorded in Matthew and Luke, we immediately run into an interesting scene. At the time of age 12, He was baptized. Or rather, He went to Jerusalem, taken there by His parents, and on that occasion, for the next 18 years, we know nothing more about his life. Not the slightest incident, not the slightest recording Mark ever made. Wouldn't we like to know about those 18 years? More about the details of the life of him from age 12 to age 30, we know nothing. Don't you think that a biographer or even an autobiographer would have provided some details about that stretch of 18 years and yet the Bible gives us nothing? Maybe one final observation. What about the apostles, including Paul? Those apostles, of course, were handpicked by Jesus to carry on the labor and work after His ascension to glory. But what about their work? Do we know much from the New Testament about the preaching of Andrew and the preaching of Bartholomew and the preaching of the others as they are mentioned? We know almost nothing. What about the way Paul ultimately died? We know that he was in a Roman prison in Acts 28. And we know that it seems in likelihood he was released and later imprisoned again. But would we not like to know the details? I'd submit to you the Bible was not written to satisfy our curiosity. It was written to reveal truth. The five verses of the Lord's baptism in Matthew is all we need to know. No human writer would specifically have been brief in the way the Bible was. A human writer would have given more details, would have given all the things in the Bible to be about that thick. God told us what we needed to know and no more. The secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Can we not see that the Bible thus was not given to you and me to address all the questions and curiosities of life? We have enough to get to heaven, enough to order the church properly and live the way he would find pleasing. But all the details about the Ark of the Covenant, we'll have to wait until heaven to get the answer to that one. As far as the details of the 18 years of the Lord's life, we we'll must wait for another time for those answers. The Bible in its brevity has all the hallmarks of being written by the Holy Spirit who did not have human curiosity in mind and who did not write to satisfy the same. That thought perhaps leads us to yet another what about another evidence for the inspiration of the Bible? 
the descriptions that it presents. Isn't it wonderful to open the pages of God's Word and observe the manner in which it makes descriptions of the various characters found therein? Many, many names are mentioned across the stage of biblical history. Have you ever observed and noted that they are described in absolute truthfulness in the sense that some are described in the most heroic of ways and others are the most lowly and meek, and yet, with regard to their lives, they are described in truthful fashion. Some examples, perhaps, in order. We read in Numbers 12, verse 3, that the meekest man to have lived at the time was a man named Moses. Hence, he is cataloged as a very great and wonderful person who had as an intention to serve the God of heaven. And yet eight chapters later, he struck a rock when he should not have. God punished him by, for, by not allowing him to enter the promised land. The Bible showed his positive features as well as his negative. It didn't try to hide the negative. It didn't accentuate the positive. It simply told the truth. We read about David in 1 Kings 17, a heroic person who, though a lad and far younger than Goliath, slew that giant of a Philistine man. In that chapter and the next, he is carried to the heights of greatness in Israel as they sang about him having killed his ten thousands. And yet, not many chapters later, that same man slept with a woman that wasn't his wife. Bathsheba was her name. God's book tells the truth. It didn't hide the negative. It didn't hide his adultery. It told both his good points and his bad. Quite often, isn't it true that depending on the design of the author, something written from the pen of a human person will either overly exaggerate the positive or overly exaggerate the negative. It'll completely leave out that which is positive or completely leave out the negative. God's book does neither. It tells the truth about those characters therein. Speaking of Peter... Do we not find the keys of the kingdom were given to him in Matthew 16? He used them on Pentecost to preach to the Jews and, might we well remember, as great as that sermon was not many chapters later, Paul said, I withstood him to the face for he was to be blamed. Did Peter make mistakes? He sure did. In fact, he lived hypocritically in that when James and others came in Galatians 2.11, he would not eat with them. Paul said he was to be blamed. God's book tells the truth. Romans 2.11 reminds us that God is no respecter of persons. And Acts 10.34 and 35 tells us, But in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. You see, the descriptions are completely unbiased from a human perspective. It tells the good points of those that are therein, and it also tells their mistakes. Quite often, depending again on the design of its author, a human work of literature will not do that. It'll often exaggerate the negative, it will exaggerate the positive, or it will do something perhaps somewhere in between. As one thinks about those descriptions, I might ask you to notice there's actually a little more that might be said. Those descriptions lead me to say this. There are many things contained in the Word of God that would never have been included if a human person had simply written it. Consider this. In Old Testament history, the God's chosen people were the Israelites, the Jews. It was they who, in fact, had been given the law of God at Sinai. It was they who had been given the promises that through them a Savior would come. 
All the while, though, we remember that it was the Jews who at least had a fair appreciation for the role of marriage. It was they who, in fact, in their own law, had statements about illegitimately born children. Question, how was Jesus born? Would any person writing a plot, a novel, if you will, concoct a story where the chief hero was born out of wedlock? And yet Jesus was. Yet he fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament, but in fact, Joseph was not his father. God was. Might it be expected then that the Jews would reject him, that the Jews would not have an interest in this, and yet they're the very people whom he came to save, as well as, of course, the entire world. No human would have put the scheme together that way. Or yet consider another. In terms of the Lord's apostles, notice there were a twelve initially chosen. Consider two of them for a moment, if you would. One of them was Simon the Zealot. The word zealot describes a group of people living in the first century who were adamantly opposed to the ruling power of Rome and who, in fact, went on renegade missions to slay various Roman mercenaries, Roman soldiers, and Roman leaders. The zealots hated the Romans, and they would resort to physical violence, in fact, to try and wreak havoc upon them. However, Simon, a zealot, was one of the apostles. What about another of the apostles, namely a man named Matthew? He was a tax collector. He was an employee, if you will, of the Roman Empire. Here were two people who one would have expected would be haters of one another. And yet they were bound together by the very cause of the master who chose them to serve as apostles for the kingdom. Would a human orator have chosen that scheme of things? Or perhaps yet another, Judas the thief. We remember he, of course, also was a chosen apostle. And yet, as Jesus chose Judas to be an apostle, might we wonder, would a human of origination have made that choice? So many things in the Bible no human would have chosen. It would have been written differently had it been done simply by human means. Speaking about the Lord and His interaction with the Israelites and Jews, what had been said concerning the law of Moses about them? In Leviticus chapters 11 and 12, as well as 13 and 14, in fact. Notice, though, that when Jesus came, He touched lepers. He interacted with them. He preached to them. He encouraged them. On one occasion, He healed ten of them in Luke 17. And only one returned to thank Him. From a Jewish audience and a Jewish perspective, such would not have happened. All of these evidences seem to point amazingly that the Bible was not written, as you would think, to appeal to a Jewish audience. But there are things about the Gentiles also that it would not have appealed to them either. No human would have written the Bible containing what it does. As these evidences are written for us to consider, it might be fair then to summarize the lesson today by drawing some interesting conclusions. We have looked at some evidences, three of them in fact, that the Bible is in fact inspired. First of all, we noted its unity. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, and all the way into Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, we see then that the Bible is a unified whole. Every writer wrote the specified required part on the part of God to fulfill a necessary link in the chain of human redemption. The chief subject of the entire Bible is that. 
as it presents God and His greatness. It starts from creation, telling us how the world and universe came to be, and it ends with Christ going home to glory and the saints crying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, speaking of His return some sweet day. All of that's contained in the Word of God and not a beat is skipped. All the necessary details for you and me are provided. It's a unified whole, though written over 1,600 years by 40 different men. Not only that, it's brief. In various ways, the Bible does not satisfy human curiosity. It presents God's truth on the subject of redemption and what's needed to fulfill life and to live pleasingly. But other than that, the other details will have to wait until another time. And finally, the matter of its descriptions. Absolutely true in everything presented. God does not lie, Titus 1 verse 2. Thus, when he describes Abraham or Joseph or Peter or others, the good points of their life are complimented and the sad, negative, sinful points are also noted. You and I can be ever thankful then for this book. Perhaps it'd be fair to say in closing, those other books that I mentioned, namely the Quran as well as the Book of Mormon, we certainly cannot call into question the sincerity of those who believe those books, but are they inspired? Do they have the same characteristics that God's Word does? I would encourage anyone to read those books. You'll find that there are things in them that contradict this one. That means one of them cannot be right. In fact, it means that one of them must be, one is not. With regard to the Word of God, this is the one in which there are no errors, no discrepancies, no uncertainties. The plan of salvation is revealed in this book. What is needed in order to gain heaven is our eternal home. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. When the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, might we notice the word all is the adjective preceding the word Scripture. It doesn't mean that some books are more significant than others. It doesn't mean that some books can be ignored while others cannot. All Scripture is given by God's inspiration. Theonustos, God breathed. Have you obeyed the commandments in of this book? Have you placed the resting power of your soul in the careful hands of the Savior? If you have done that, then you know the glorious thing that took place when you were baptized. When He washed your sins away and you rested pure and clean as a newborn baby in the sight of God. If you haven't had that experience today, you need to do that. If you've reached that point in life of knowing right from wrong that Christ died for you and that sin will send you to hell, you need to obey now. Time is of the essence. We are not promised tomorrow nor the day after. Obey today while you have the opportunity. If we could be of assistance in that way to you, we would certainly enjoy doing that as you would rejoice with us on that occasion. You must repent of your sins after your belief. Confess Jesus as your Savior and be baptized. Once you've become a member of the church in the act of baptism, Acts 2.47, we understand faithful living until death is required of us, Roman, or Revelation 2 verse 10. If you haven't lived faithfully, if you've brought reproach upon yourself, if you have done things of which you're ashamed in your family and your church family and God too is ashamed come back to your first love the church in Ephesus was urged to do that in Revelation 2 we could aid you by praying on your behalf Acts chapter 8 provides us with the example if either of these things is in need of your life will you not let it be known and come forward requesting the thing would be necessary even now while together we stand and while we sing